Father, we are your people. We are the sheep of your flock, of your pasture. You are our shepherd. And this is your word. And we pray that you would shepherd us by your word and that your spirit would work to make us responsive. What a miracle that would be. But it is promised in the name of Christ. And so it is in his name we pray. Amen. And we often look for 10 easy steps or five easy steps or six steps to certain success. And this is something that happens in, uh, in, in business. This is something that happens in relationships and marriage fixing and all these things. Um, it certainly also happens in religious circles. Except this is not something that the Lord provides for us. And this is one of the pieces of his word where that screams so extremely clearly that this is not how God operates. And we can see that in the book of Ruth, as we've noticed uh, at the beginning of our series, we saw that the reason the book, of, uh, the book of Ruth exists, why God gave us the book of Ruth, is in part because Israel needed a king, and through the events in the book of Ruth, God would provide for them a king. Israel wasn't given 10 easy steps, 10 sure ways to make sure that you get the king that, God, that you need from God, that you get the success. He doesn't do that. And in fact, there is a, a critical piece in our text today, and we're reading from Ruth chapter 1, and we're going to be doing, going from 19 all the way into chapter 2, but there is a critical piece in this text that is just beautiful. Now, I'm actually going to read it before we get to the rest of it. The first verse of chapter 2 is out of place. The author is giving us something that nobody knows yet. And it's, he's giving it out of order. Ruth chapter 2 verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Inserted there, out of place. But we know the author's point in this. Israel didn't need to know the plan for how God would give her a king. Israel didn't need to know the plan for how God would give her a redeemer. They just know that he had a plan and they needed to know that he knew what the plan was. Let's read. Let's, uh, let's, let's read from Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So here we are, Naomi, who is a widow. She had left Israel 10 years earlier with her husband Elimelech and their two sons. They go to the, the country of Moab to escape a famine in Israel. Her sons marry two Moabite wives who do not love the Lord. Her husband dies. Her sons died. She is widowed. And her daughters-in-law are widowed. One of them remains with her, Ruth. And they make their journey back to Bethlehem. 
back to their hometown in the land of Israel. And this text very clearly wants you to notice that Naomi's shame and bitterness was noticeable and that it was noticed by others. So the whole town was stirred by the sight of Naomi returning. Could this be her? And of course, they call her by her name, which is Naomi. And Naomi means pleasant. But Naomi's life was far from pleasant, and they could see that. So Naomi cannot bear the irony and insists people now call her Mara or bitter. And so many of them, most of them, had stayed in Israel to wait out the famine with the people of God. But Elimelech and Naomi had left because they thought they could fare better by leaving. Now the question is, was this a wise choice for them? Did it turn out well? Did it turn out for them? And well, it certainly did not turn out well for them. It ended in bitterness. It ended in destitution. Naomi had nothing to show for these decisions that they had made. She was without the very things which she needed, and she's now at the mercy of others. And she's actually at the mercy of the very people whom she had left in need on their own when they left 10 years ago. I think you can appreciate the brokenness that Naomi would have felt as she walked into Bethlehem that day. Not only was she shamed, but she was, her shame was being exposed. It was obvious. It was evident for people to notice. Now, the shame of being a fallen human, a person alienated from God, whose heart is so set against the things of God, that shame is made even greater knowing what we once had. God had not created us in this state. He had not created us sinful, and now we're just trying to do our best in this state of sin which we were created. That's not how it worked. God actually created us perfect. God created us with no sin. We were created together with Adam and Eve. That was the point of our creation, and with them together, in them we sinned. Adam, as scripture tells us, is our head, our federal head. Adam was a perfect representative of us. He did what we all would have done. He did it on our behalf and we did it essentially with him. And so he disobeyed God and fell from a glorious position and a pleasant state, which God had graciously put him in. And we fell along with him. So we are now born in sin, but we were not originally created in sin. We begin our lives as sinners with sinful hearts, but it is not the place which God created us in. So we are not just people who are in a dishonored position. That would be bad enough. We are people who once enjoyed in Adam an honorable honorable position and lost it. We once had it all. A life without the sting of death, where death was a threat that we could hardly understand. And now we celebrate it when a person is able to live 80 years. We've fallen far. This is not to say that Naomi's pain was a result of her sin in this story. She sure seems to think so. She says that the Lord is testifying against her with this suffering, but this is not the point. Only that her bitter state and the feeling which enveloped her because of it is a demonstration of the state which we all find ourselves in and one which we have fallen from fullness and glory into. So Naomi had a life which she would have once wanted to be noticed. 
And now she lost it. And that loss is on full display. Her loss is noticed by others. That was our first point, that Naomi's bitter state is noticed. I want to look at our second point now, which is depending upon the loving hand of God's providence. And so now our author, from moving from pointing out Naomi's public loss, the Lord quickly points our attention to how then these women walked in that state that they were in. So they're, they're in this fallen state. They're in this state of, of, uh, of bitterness and fallenness, and they are destitute. And in it, they walk dependent on the loving hand of God's providence. I trust that you can see that highlighted in our text. And before we move along into our story, I want to point that out in the, t- in the verses that we've already read. If you go back to verse 19 with me, you see it already in these things. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when he, and they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Why? Because bad things happen to me by chance? No. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and who brought her back empty? The Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? You can see how Naomi doesn't leave the events of her life, including the deaths of her husband and sons. She doesn't leave those things up to chance. She recognizes these things as the sovereign and intentional actions of God on her life. She believed in the Lord who involved himself in the affairs of humans. The God whom she believed in was not a spectator to history but who sovereignly and wisely and intentionally brings about his purposes through these events, which others might see as random, or perhaps events that they might think are under their control or maybe under control of another king. And you can notice the string of events which neither Naomi nor Ruth were in control of, but clearly the Lord was intentionally using to accomplish something for his people. He was bringing these events about. Now let's continue reading into verse 22, and we're going to read all the way to verse 4 of chapter 2. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite with her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, I love that, to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So both Naomi and now Ruth, they recognized that they were at the mercy of the Lord who reigns over all creation. In our condition of being merely creatures, though we have real and true choices, the vast majority of our lives are not something that we actually have control over. We make choices and they are real, but the majority of the things in our lives are actually not things that we can have control over. There are many things which leave us with the impression that we are in control. 
So for instance, a man who works diligently and makes for himself a good living so that he can buy what he wants and, and care for all his needs, he could easily forget that while his work is important and honorable and it is his choice and he should make that choice, it is the Lord who gave him the strength and health and opportunities to do that work. He needs to ask himself, why did he not die of cancer eight years ago that he can continue this business? Why did he not have a stroke which rendered him wheelchair-bound? Why was it that his land wasn't stricken with war? And why was he able to live in a place of peace which provided opportunity to grow a stable business? We are less in control than we think. And for all the things that can go wrong in our lives, sideways in our lives, there are 100 trillion things that are working. And it is because things seem so reliable that we notice when something goes wrong. So I'm so used to my heart beating regularly without me thinking about it that I would notice when it doesn't. All of those things are in the sovereign hand of the Lord Jesus Christ who not only made the heavens and the earth but who upholds them by his wise and powerful word. His hand, the Bible says. G.K. Chesterton once said that the sun rises each day predictably and repeatedly and even boringly but it does so because the Lord tells it to again. There are forces which science can investigate, and God uses these things to bring that about. Orbit and gravity, and I'm going to stop right there before I show my ignorance. But those things speak of how it happens. They do not speak of why it happens. Why is it that these things operate the way they do, so predictably, reliably, so that we can count on them? Why is it that the sun rises and sets each day predictably? And precisely in the way that provides the kind of stability and environment to sustain life for our human endeavors. Why? Because it pleases the Lord to provide that and to keep providing that for his creation. Naomi trusted in a God of providence, not superstition. This is not even close to the idea of superstition. See, superstition was very common in Ruth's day as it is in our day. Now, a quick survey of social media is going to give you a lifetime's worth of mediums and psychics and magic crystal dealers before we think that we're more advanced than these other cultures. We are not. See, superstition believes that there are spiritual forces, but it believes that these are essentially controlled by men and women. Yes, there are spiritual forces behind everything, and pay me enough money, and we can control these things. And the Lord had always revealed himself and demonstrated himself in Israel to be a sovereign God. All things came from his hand. And Job... When he suffered greatly, he was confronted by his wife who encouraged him to curse God and die. If you remember the story of the book of Job. Job did not deny that God was ultimately the one who brought his pain. And his response is recorded for us in Job chapter 2 verse 10. Job 2.10. Job's response to his wife was not, God is not to blame for this. God didn't do this. Leave God out of this. He says this. Shall we, shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Though this story of Ruth that we're reading is a story which God wrote, 
in his word. He also wrote it with the events themselves. God is not just the author of the Bible. He is the author of history. And through this, the Lord was reminding Israel that just like Ruth and Naomi, all of Israel's history and future were in the Lord's sovereign and wise and trustworthy hands. Ruth didn't plan to marry a foreign man and have him die and then be taken to that foreign land with his mom. That was not her plan. Naomi didn't know and certainly didn't plan to have her husbands and sons die in Moab. She didn't even plan to walk into Bethlehem with a Moabite former daughter-in-law, but there she was. It wasn't random, and neither was it magic, and neither was it fate. This is not fatalism either. This is not Ruth and Naomi and the people of God just saying, whatever happens will happen. I'm just going to sit down and wait for it to happen because God is in control and God is sovereign. That's not even close to the way that Israel was to, told to respond to God's sovereignty. How does then a person trusting the loving hand of providence of God act? Do they simply sit there and wait for something to happen? Do they wait for a sign from God to tell them which door to go through, which job to apply for, which woman to marry who will not die, which company to invest in that will not go bankrupt? Is that what they do? Not at all. Trusting in the providence of God, his invisible hand means that we work diligently, doing the things which God instructs us to do in his word, and to trust that he will work things out for his glory and for our good. I wonder if you noticed Ruth's words. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She didn't know who that would be who would look on her favorably. But she resolved to just keep looking for a field to glean until she found one that was favorable to her. She worked diligently, but her life was in God's hands and she was at his mercy. If we go to 1 Peter 4, go to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, the last verse. 1 Peter 4, verse 19. This is a beautiful instruction. Two people who are enduring suffering 1 Peter 4, 19. What do we do knowing that God is sovereign? Therefore, let us let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while sitting down and doing nothing. No. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Did you notice the mention of Boaz before she meets him? Again, we saw that. It is odd. And why is it there? In verse 1, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man from the, of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. This is a detail of the story of God's plan for Ruth, which was important. Someone needed to know this detail. Someone needed to know this detail. But Ruth didn't need to know that detail before it happened. The narrator knows. The author knows. And it is enough that he knows about Ruth's redeemer. He knows she needs to meet him. And he brings it to reality. Without her even knowing that it needed to happen. So Ruth happens to come to the field. It just so happened. The most beautiful words the field of a man who had the ability to restore the family. 
because he was a relative and he was also a relative with the means to do this. This is what it means by saying a worthy man. This is a man that he has the means to be able to restore. He is a man of means. And Boaz happens to be visiting the fields from Bethlehem when Ruth happened to be there. And not only that, Boaz happened to notice Ruth. All of those things by God's sovereign hand. So there is Ruth, a poor widow. No land, no fields of her own. But she was dependent on a law which God had commanded Israel. That when you harvest your field, you can't go to the edges. You have to leave it for the poor so that they can work and gather it for themselves. Also, you can't pick up any grain that you drop. Or go back to harvest what you missed. You can only go one time through your field and that's it. Anything that is left over must be for the poor to work and gather for themselves. And so she's dependent on this law. She is officially poor, destitute, and she just happens to catch the eye of a person who had the ability to redeem her family's shame. There was no blueprint for her to follow to make this happen other than the one in God's own mind which he faithfully executed that plan. It brings us to the third point which is oh to be noticed by grace. So remember that Ruth began that day by telling Naomi that she would look to work in the field of someone in whose sight she would find favor. Favor means grace. And grace means undeserved gift, undeserved gift. She wasn't looking for someone to notice how worthy she was. She wasn't looking for someone to realize her rights and how important she was. She was looking to find favor and grace, undeserved favor and grace from someone. Now notice the difference in being noticed here. The beginning of the text that we had today Ruth and Naomi were noticed by gawkers, essentially. Their shame was noticeable and their shame was noticed. It was exposed. It was on display. Usually when things aren't going well for us, the last thing we want is for people to notice. And so we tidy ourselves up. We put makeup on before we make our social media posts. So we put a filter on. We edit them. We do all these things. We, we would rather not be noticed in that way. But you see that they, their shame was on full display and they were noticed. But here we see Ruth noticed in the most delightful way. And this is not only a story, as we said, written by God, but these events themselves were written by God, who is the author of history, Boaz notices Ruth. And there is romance all over this story. Romance is written into the hearts of young men and young women. It's written into the hearts of young men to want to be noticed by a young woman. It's no accident. And it is not a bad thing. It is written in the hearts of of young women to be noticed by young men, to be the one, the one that he notices, to be the apple of his eye, for him to have affection for you, 
This is the Lord's doing. And we're told in the book of Ephesians that this mystery is a profound one which refers to, which intentionally was created to give us a sense of the affection and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church. There was no reason for the Lord to elect, to choose those whom he redeemed from sin. Another way to say fiancé is bride elect. And that is exactly what the church is for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had no reason to elect her. None. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to choose a church, a people to redeem. He didn't have to. You do not have to take the punishment of a man who burns your house down. Nobody would require that of you. Anybody who would require that of you and say, you're not a loving person unless you choose to take the punishment of the man who burns your house down, you look at them as if they were foolish. And yet God does that. There's nothing special about the church or Israel before Christ came. But he set his affections on us in our lowly state. Not even a lowly state, but even worse than that, a place where we had glory, but we had chosen together with Adam, we had chosen a life estranged to God. This is a choice that we in Adam made. It wasn't only a lowly state, but it was a fallen state, a guilty state. And like Boaz noticed Ruth, the Lord noticed. He set his affections and love and devotion on his people. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 says this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own treasured possession. This is romance language. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth... And it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to, his, to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Lord set his affections on his people before time began. Out of all the human race, out of all those who would rebel and hate him, the Lord in love chose for himself a people, and he chose to set his love and affections on them. The Father elected a people for his Son to redeem. He gave these people to his Son as a bride to love and to cherish and to take her sin and her pain and her guilt and her damnation and her death in love. Notice the love and affection was God's sovereign choice, finding nothing within those whom he redeems as a reason, nothing which would attract him to us. It was a gracious election based on grace. And that means for those whom he has set his affection on, those whom he has chosen, those who are the apple of his eye, those whose sin and damnation he would bear, they are not chosen by merit, but by God's good pleasure. Don't ask for a reason why God loved you enough to die for your sins. There will be no reason. A person who thinks they know why God chose them to save is likely not saved because they are denying grace. It wouldn't be because he knew you'd be faithful because you wouldn't be faithful unless he himself worked that in you. Ruth is a picture of this. Boaz had no benefit to noticing this woman. He didn't seem to be a man who didn't have options available to him. 
He didn't seem to be a man who didn't have options available. He's said to be a worthy man, and that's actually communicating as, you're communicating, as we said, somebody who's known as a good man and a man of means, of wealth. He's actually uh, described as a godly man as well. He's a man of character and also of means. He would have likely had options. But Ruth had none. She had only liabilities. She was a former enemy of God's people. And as we'll see, see later, to marry her would actually mean to incur a massive debt and forfeit your own inheritance. And so it is with the affection of the Lord for his people. The Lord's affection is not petty. It's not fleeting. Not the way that we are used to. It is a covenant affection and a covenant love. It is an affection which is carried by an oath sworn by God himself. We saw that when we read in Deuteronomy. Not only does he swear to be faithful to his church, he also swears an oath regarding his love and affection. Unlike us, his heart doesn't pull against his oaths. He's not keeping his oath to love us against his will. It is a joy for him to keep that oath. Now, it certainly was painful for him to keep that oath. But it was also a joy. Christ kept the oath when he died for his bride on a cross, taking the crushing wrath of God which she had accumulated and would continue to accumulate in the future. To take her damnation and death on the cross was something that was needed to be endured rather than enjoyed. But it was something which he endured for the sake of his love and also for the sake of joy, Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him he endured the cross despising the shame. God has created romance in humanity for us to begin to get a picture of what that means. To delight in giving your life to someone else. To delight in them giving their life to you. To belong to someone and them to belong to you. To have eyes only for someone and them to have only eyes for you. To be driven to care for someone who is the apple of your eye, forsaking all others, no matter what it costs you. That is a sliver of 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 God's affection for the elect. Disney did not invent romance. The Lord God who created the universe wrote it into humanity as a mystery which would better proclaim the gospel of his son's undeserved uncalled for affection and sacrifice for wicked sinners to make them his own. The Lord out of all the mass of humanity who hates him, who are steeped in wickedness, before the foundation of the world, he chose for himself a bride and he set his affections on her. And then, with his loving hand of providence, governed every particle, every nation, every leaf, every speck of dust, every drop of rain, every cancer cell, every virus, every birthday, every vaccine, every graduation, every wedding, every funeral, every failure, every loss, every gain to bring this bride to himself and to keep her to the end. This is his invisible hand of providence. It just so happened. If you just so happened to be someone who heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and you just so happened to trust in that gospel, rejoice 
because it was God's invisible hand of providence that moved heaven and earth to make that happen. You can also be certain that he will continue to use that exact same hand of providence, moved by that exact same covenant love and affection to keep you and hold you and treasure you and warn you and transform you and increase your knowledge of his love for you, for you until he brings you home. Ruth is not a blueprint of how to find a wife or a husband. Please don't use it as that. You may be married and you may be not. It's not a need, but the Lord's people do need a husband. And the book of Ruth is part of how God brings one to her. The Lord Jesus Christ. God's people need a redeemer and a king. And the book of Ruth is about how God, using his sovereign, loving, and mostly invisible hand of providence, brings one to them. Jesus. The book of Ruth is not about how to make sure you have children. Like Ruth and Naomi, they wanted children. And in the book of Ruth, God provides them children. Now, children are a massive blessing. And it is good to want them. But you don't need children. It is a book about how God provided a son for his whole people. Remember the book of Isaiah, the prophecy about the coming Messiah. Unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. Do not try to interpret the events of your lives, brothers and sisters. God is not a God of puzzles. God doesn't try to communicate. God doesn't try to do anything. He just does. His word was fully given when he gave us his son. If you want to know what God says to you, you look in his word. For extra clarity, do it with your church family. You do not need to know his plan. You don't. This is some weird phenomenon which developed in the church a number of years ago, but it's, it's pagan. And it is more in common with soothsayers and mediums than it does with the God of Israel. The idea that you need to know God's plan for your life, you need to know which job you should take in order to fulfill God's plan, is foolish because it denies the beauty of God's providence. The thing about God's plan is that it happens because he makes it happen, not because you know it. Ruth didn't need to know which field owner would show favor to her. She just needed to get to work, be wise, honor God, trust the Lord to take care of her. She didn't plan for Boaz to be there that day. God did. You don't need to know the plan of God. You only need to know his promises and his commands. But you also do need to know the end of the plan, which you do. Glory. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work according to his purpose. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. He made sure you'd hear the gospel and believe. He made sure you'd be in contact with somebody who would tell the gospel to you. He made sure of that. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Which is talking past tense about a future event. He will bring you to glory. And he's talking in past tense because it is so sure. It is as good as if it had already happened. It's already been paid for with Jesus' blood. This, the story of Christ and his church, is a wonderful story which you are watching from the outside 
if you do not belong to Christ. If you have not repented and turned to him. If you've not forsaken all other justification for your sin. He is not your redeemer. Instead, he is your judge. And he will be the one who executes your judgment for your sin and guilt when you meet him. But this is a promise from God which does belong to you if you have repented of your sin and sought to be forgiven and freed from it by the Lord Jesus Christ and believed that he did so when he died on the cross and rose from the dead on the third day. When your judgment was not executed by him, but on him. What love. And so if this is true for you, you are the apple of his eye. His affections are on you permanently. And he has already used his invisible hand of providence to bring you to himself. And he will certainly continue to use it to bring you home. Not because you are worthy, but because he chose you in grace. And he will use all things in your life to increase your knowledge of his love until you see him face to face. And you will be overwhelmed by the sweetness of his love and affection. And that overwhelming will not dissipate, but will grow forever and ever and ever. And after you've been there 10,000 years, you will have only just begun. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that in love you chose us who have given you no reason to choose us and have given you many reasons to unchoose us. We are grateful that you have chosen for yourself a people, a bride, and that you have seen fit to add us to that. Lord, let that affection for us, undeserved affection, let it work its power in us by your Holy Spirit that because you loved us first, we love you in response. Lord, let us never think that you love us because of anything in us. And Lord, we are grateful that you are in control of all things, all the events in our lives, that they are not by accident, they are not ultimately controlled by kings or presidents, or companies, or magic, or chance, but they are controlled by a loving God who has set his affection on his church. So Lord, let us honor you with that knowledge. Let us trust you while honoring you and looking forward to the day when your plan, though we do not know it, when your plan will be fulfilled, and you bring your bride home to enjoy your love forever. I pray that you do this in us. And Father, for those who are listening in, maybe younger children or newer people, or maybe people who've been in this church for many, many years, Lord, who are outsiders, who are not in the church, not in the truest way, Lord, who do not belong to you, who have not trusted in Christ and repented of sin. Lord, I pray that hearing this would work a jealousy in them, that they would want this. And Lord, I pray that you would turn their hearts and provide for them, graciously give them faith.
that they would enjoy the affections of the God of the universe forever. And we pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.